Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. ESPN Audio and SC Featured presents a 16-episode podcast, Pin Kings. It's the story of two All-American high school wrestlers, teammates, and friends who ultimately ended up on the opposite sides of the war on drugs. Pin Kings is for mature audiences. Welcome to Episode 5, Contraband. What is a Colombian drug cartel? It's a gang... Kevin and Alex were best friends. Champion wrestling buddies. The heydays of Miami. Alex DeCubis was clearly a kingpin. It's a, it's a tragic story. The less you know, the more you leave. I wanted to take out the biggest drug dealers. If they were catching him, he's going away for the rest of his life. If they don't kill him when they try to capture him. Could you imagine if Kevin has to shoot Alex? He's a sworn federal agent for a drug enforcement agency. Evil goes to jail, or evil ends up dead. Welcome to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. My name is Brett Forrest. I'm a senior writer at ESPN the Magazine. And I'm John Fish, a producer for ESPN. If you grew up in the U.S. in the late 70s or after, you came into a world where Colombian cocaine was simply a fact. But there is a history. You have to understand the geography. So Colombia is located on the northwestern coast of South America, which places its coastline on the southern reaches of the, of the Caribbean, very close to the U.S. Smuggling in the Caribbean is like snow in the Alps. It dates back to the early colonial period. In the 16th century, the Spanish passed a law that forbade anyone, anyone but a Spaniard, from trading with the colonists in the region. Okay, so what do you think? English, French, Dutch, Portuguese, what, what, uh, what did all these privateers in the region do? They turned into smugglers, at least a lot of them did. They smuggled tobacco, European goods, etc., th- through the various colonial ports. Put it on a boat. Exactly. So we're talking about running goods through Tortuga, Trinidad, Havana, and Cartagena, which is on Colombia's north coast. So Colombia was always a part of this, and th- this real tradition in the transport of illicit goods. Well, there are really two reasons to smuggle. First of all, you want to avoid paying taxes and duties. Right. That's why smugglers on the north coast of Colombia, we're talking well into the 20th century, loaded their ships with cigarettes, coffee, and other domestic products. Now, I think I know the other reason to smuggle. The Melio is a Panamanian registered ship, but its cargo was pure Colombian. 160 tons of high-grade marijuana in the hole 
and maybe somewhere on board, several hundred pounds of cocaine. The Caesars, the largest on record. Sixteen Coast Guardsmen boarded the ship on Friday after their cutter followed it for 12 hours. It was towed to Miami yesterday afternoon, and the crew, all believed to be Colombian, were detained. The marijuana was stacked below decks in bales, some of it hidden under a load of asbestos. The street value of this cargo today would be something like $100 million. Of course, pot was illegal. And much of the marijuana that came into the U.S. in the 60s and the 70s, it it came from Jamaica. But Colombia became a big player as well. Smugglers would fly small planes packed with pot, and they would land on these remote airstrips in Florida or Louisiana or other states in the south. They would land in the Bahamas, and boats would pick up the bales and head into Miami. Or they would do airdrops, where planes would drop the bales into the water, and there'd be a waiting boat which would then go to another waiting boat, and they'd bring the load in, as they say. A square grouper is a term that was coined in South Florida. This is Paul Pelletier, the former federal prosecutor who worked the Alex DeCubis case. When law enforcement would find people out on the water and they would have a bale of marijuana or a bale of cocaine on their boat, the law enforcement would typically ask them what they were doing out on the water and they would invariably say fishing. Law enforcement would then say, I guess you're fishing for square grouper because the bales of marijuana were square. Felix Chitiva grew up on the north coast of Colombia and eventually became a high-ranking cartel figure. He explains it further. At the beginning, they used to take DC, DC-3, DC-4 airplanes, DC-6, but they, they only can stock like 20,000, 30,000 pounds. Then the business and then the, in the United States, started, people started consuming so much that what they used to call the golden marijuana from Colombia. Then they used to like a lot, a lot. So that's when they start using vessels, and that's when they start using the coast. David Lemieux smuggled marijuana and cocaine with Alex DeCubis. We had this one freighter. The last time it came was right off of Great Stirrup Key in the Bahamas. This guy brought the freighter in so close to the island because he he knew the island well that if anybody picked it up on radar, it would just look like a part of the island. So we just sat there and the thing had 54,000 pounds of marijuana on board. 54,000 pounds of pot. Yeah, and, and that was really only a, a fairly, fairly large-sized load. There was an incredible amount of action, largely because the laws of the day were pretty anemic. Here's Paul Pelletier. And they would literally drive tugboats, ferries, right up rivers anywhere in South Florida with huge amounts of, of marijuana on board without fear of anyone cooperating, without fear of getting caught. And even if they did get caught... Essentially, nobody would go to jail. U.S. authorities were totally unprepared for these kinds of coordinated smuggling operations. You had the enormous coastline of South Florida. It was essentially unprotected. The success of the operations only made the smugglers more bold. You know, there's this wild story of this one Colombian trafficker who loaded a barge with an enormous amount of pot. You know, some people were telling us it was 300,000 pounds. Other, other people said it was a million pounds. Either way, this barge from Colombia, stacked with huge bales of pot, sailed right up the Mississippi River. One time, I went with him and all his crew, like 100 persons, 
all over to ship a million pounds of marijuana on a barge, and it went all the way to Louisiana River. They throw the rope to the contact. This is Felix Chitiva again. I think he means the Mississippi River. I don't remember the name of the American guy. They got arrested and all that. The next three days, some of the crew that was on the barge, they brought on in a private jet. But I was back in a, that was amazing. This is Scott Shiraus, a friend of Alex Cubis. He had done a load of marijuana that was 290,000 pounds that came in successfully. A, fr- a friend of mine, Lee Rich, brought that in, and they took a barge up the Mississippi River, and they got a quarter of a million pounds off. Shiraus is referring to one of the major Colombian smugglers of the marijuana trafficking period, Julio Caesar Nasser David. The Old Man was his nickname. Julio Nasser David Organization, which is, it was an independent one on the northern coast in Barranquilla. This is Jim Burke of the Boca Raton, Florida Police Department. Burke formed and headed the task force, the No Moss Task Force, which investigated the Alex de Cubis trafficking organization. He had smuggling routes for years. So when it changed, he would just change with it. So he would move rum, cigarettes, marijuana. It's your typical smuggling route. So, you know, whatever drug, whatever merchandise you can get into this country and make money, they're going to do it. So it's just a, the typical thing of, of opportunity, where he had the original routes with the, with the ships. Julio Nasser David was one of the kings, one of the pioneers of smuggling, coastal smuggling, El Turco. Keith Curtis was a DEA agent in Miami and Bogota. Julio Nasser David was a, a very, very effective old school smuggler, maybe starting out in the 60s with cigarettes and then progressing to marijuana. You probably wouldn't want to, uh, you wouldn't want to uh, stiff him of his money. That would be uh, probably a poor decision making. A poor decision because there was a considerable amount of money floating around in these circles. Felix Chitiva was friends with Julio Nasser's sons, and he saw the organization from the inside. I was like 13 years old, and all you hear is about uh, marimberos, which is the people that export marijuana and all the crazy money and the crazy cars and everything. And I see each one of his kids, Jorge and Carlos, they used to have like three, four cars, their own Mercedes, BMWs, trucks, big food trucks and all that, that we used to come to United States just to buy all the parts and come back. The old man was like the biggest successful uh, marijuana drug dealer at the beginning, back in the 70s, when the, uh, the majority of them, they used to be uh, contraband smugglers from items from Panama, Aruba, to, Colo, to the coast, to La Guajira, and Barranquilla, and Santa Marta. And then uh, suddenly, the same boat that they was using to bring us items from, San, from Panama to Colombia, they started using it from the coast of the, uh, Colombia to uh, United States or Bahamas. So you had this incredibly lucrative marijuana trafficking business. But a couple of events conspired to kill it. One, growers in the U.S. began engineering stronger strains of marijuana and buyers liked this stuff better. So it became harder to sell the lower-grade Colombian marijuana. Prices were driven down. And at the same time, criminal groups in Colombia 
they had identified another drug that they believed could make them a lot more money. Here's David Lemieux. The Colombians had changed the gardening down there, so to speak, to uh, start growing the cocoa tree bushes and instead of the weed. You could tell that there wasn't weed coming anymore. It all changed. Cocaine is a lot less bulky than a bale of marijuana. And cocaine is made from the leaves of the cocoa plant, which grows naturally high up in the Andes. Then the leaf undergoes processing in a lab. It was perfect. What happens in a cocaine lab? They take the leaf and then they take it to a, a place, a square like that, with a, with a something like that. This is Felix Chitiva again. They spread all the leaves and then they put cement on it and they start smashing it and they start washing it. And then it has a, a, an exit on that, that side with some, with gasoline. And whatever comes to there goes to the filters. And then they put uh, permanganate potassio and then put some other stuff. And then powder comes in powder and then they put them on presses and, and squares like that, models like that. And then they put them and they start pressing it. You can put it as much as this thing, one kilo, or you can put it, but then you lose, it lose shiny and quality. So the best, that's why you always see them like a normal standard size, where they don't, they don't you know, when the people that use them, they see so flaky and shiny. Well, it's grown and processed in uh, Central and South America, mostly South America. This is Paul Pelletier, the former federal prosecutor. It's grown and processed in Bolivia, a little bit in Peru, but mo mostly Bolivia is where I understand it. Columbia has the processing labs where they have um, the chemicals, the access to the chemicals, and the processing that takes place in order to make cocaine paste from the coca plant. Columbia at the time was the leading um, manufacturer of cocaine, if you will. In the jungles of Colombia, they would actually process the cocaine. It wasn't necessarily grown there. It might have been grown in Bolivia or some other South American country, but in Colombia, they processed the cocaine and manufactured the cocaine. And um, they just had a lot of sites where they were allowed to, allowed to profligate um, during that time. So they began mass producing cocaine the U.S. was developing into a massive marketplace for them. Because there's no market for cocaine in Colombia. That's why they send it to the United States. They send it to where the markets are, Europe and the United States. There was a demand, it was an attractive market because there was a demand for cocaine in the United States, number one. Number two, people have access to wealth in the United States. And number three, you have to sell your cocaine to places that want it. Right, Americans had access to wealth, and they were more than willing to pay a premium for this new drug. At the beginning of this period, John, listen, the late 70s, a kilogram of Colombian cocaine cost roughly $50,000 in the U.S. Right. And that when Colombian cocaine cartels realized the potential of the market, they flooded it. And that brought the price down, Supply but their margins were still enormous. Supply and demand. Right. So basically, in the time frame I investigated Alex de Cubis, a kilo could run anyway between 18,000 and 24,000 per kilo. This is Jim Burke of the Boca Raton Police Department. 
Now, recreational use is a gram, a couple grams. So you could buy gram amounts for maybe $80, $90 ounces, half a key, multi-ounces. So it all, it all increases on what you're looking for. Then you're talking about the quality of, of, of cocaine. Now, cocaine 101, too, you'd have people that would step on the cocaine, too. Step down would mean taking a, a cut, a laxative. They used to cut cocaine with all kind of crazy stuff. So you're making more volume. So out of, out of a kilo of cocaine, you might get three pounds of cocaine. You know, so you're more, more ability to sell more and make more money. The price for Colombian pot had dropped to less than 25 bucks a kilo. And then you had cocaine, which was far more compact, much cheaper to transport, and was worth tens of thousands of dollars per kilo. So you can see why Colombian growers changed crops. The drug traffickers in Colombia could make a kilo of cocaine for $250. This is David Tinsley, a former supervising DEA agent. They could literally make it for that. They could sell that in the United Kingdom for 20,000 to 25,000 pounds sterling, which is equivalent to about $35,000. So the profit margins are enormous. They could sell it in Miami, New York. Less than that, it was back in the day, 16, 18,000, but still enormous profit. And as the money started rolling in from the sales in the U.S., you can see why criminal groups formed in Colombia. These became what would be known as the Colombian cocaine cartels. Explain the Colombian cartels. What did they do? What, what were they? Well, they all have their own roots. They all have their own contacts. And they all have their own way to supply themselves. And the cocaine from the fields and become the, the cocaine leaf into a cocaine base and then to crystal cocaine and heroin also. What is a Colombian drug cartel? It's a gang. A Colombian cartel is a gang that they have, they have the way to, to go to the fields and see the, the, cocaine, leaf, uh, the, cocaine, the cocaine trees. Then from there, uh, become a, a crystal cocaine. Then in the meantime, that's happening, and the labs and all that, they, they arrange the, uh, the, the transportation from the labs all the way to the coast or all the way to the airports. There, there was so many ways to export the, the, the cocaine. And then you, use, you start using your people. That's when you became the head of the cartel and your people is the rest of the cartel. Then, then you, you need contacts in the United States or Europe or whatever you're shipping in Mexico. Then you need a way to transport. And that's how, that's how it becomes a cartel. That's a big organization. Yes, it's a big organization. Yeah. It was, till I learned, it was three Colombian cartels. The Cali cartel, Medellin cartel, and the Coast Cartel, and then later on, the North Valley Cartel. The rise of the cocaine trade created these new criminal groups. Paul Pelletier explains. Where did the organizations, the cartels come from? They, they grew organically. I mean, it was by necessity. Barranquilla, they were trade, you know, there were traders there anyway, so they're, they're boat people, and people from Barranquilla are famous for smug, they're famous smugglers, usually good smugglers. They would smuggle goods, so they were, and so, by necessity, there was money to be made in drug trafficking. Colombia was producing the world's largest amount of cocaine. So by necessity, that it just happened organically, I think, in, in Colombia. And each cartel developed a structure to execute all parts of the overall operation. Here's Felix Chitiva. It's like every legal business. you got to have 
the person that do the management and everything, the principal, and then the branches, and every branch dedicate themselves to wash the money, to distribution, to double check quality, double check transportations. Every, 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 it's a, that's what it makes a cartel, a bunch of people that every single person has a mission in that cartel, and everybody gets paid as, according to what they do. And each cartel had its own way of operating. The Medellin cartel and the North Coast cartel were mostly shippers um, of cocaine by boats or by airdrop. And they essentially ran Colombia for a long period of time. That was, um, it, it was a lawless, as I said, country during those periods of time. And it, they were running Colombia and they were responsible for, I would say those three cartels alone were responsible for 90% of the cocaine that came in the United States. Our cartels were a threat to the United States insofar as they were um, promoting sort of the drug into America and sucking money out of America. Basically had the Medellin cartel, which was um, headed by Pablo Escobar and Gustavo Gaviria. You had the Cali cartel, headed by the Orjuelas. And then you had the North Coast cartel, which was, at the time I was dealing with them, was headed by Julio Nasser. They controlled the drug trade in their particular areas. They would essentially control the price, control the distribution method, and control all of the, the antecedent operations that flow from that. The cartels became highly organized, but they had one problem that was just impossible to solve sitting around in Colombia. The cartels couldn't carry the football into the end zone. Here's Pelletier again. The cartel leaders in Colombia were all wanted in the United States, so they couldn't typically come to the United States. So they had to hire someone who could, they could trust to do that job in the United States. It's the most important part. An honest American partner because they live here, they know about boats, and they look good. They got uh, American passports. They get stopped, and you have no records or nothing. They're not going to bother you. A Colombian cartel needs a solid American partner to handle transportation into the U.S. And Julio Cesar Nasser David, the leader of the North Coast Cartel, is formulating a plan. Remember, he's the one who sent hundreds of thousands of pounds of marijuana up the Mississippi River. Here's Scott Schraus. Julio decides that he... He had a lot of money, but he always had this goal of bigger, biggest, biggest, biggest load. And now he wanted to do something similar with cocaine, 20,000 pounds of cocaine. And they worked out, they bought a Danish freighter. Julio Nasser had concocted a massive plan. All he needed was the right American partner. Thank you for listening to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. You can follow Pin Kings on Twitter at ESPN Pin Kings. That's at ESPN Pin Kings. A preview of the next episode follows this message. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Next on Pin Kings, Episode 6, The Coach. I remember we both looked at each other and said, this is never going to happen again. There was a, a, a young, young man who just made his coach's dreams come true. Now, this coach and this young man are inseparable. It was a unique relationship. I think it still is today. And, and in some ways, uh, I was jealous of that. Alex is this guy that surprises everybody. He is the hero. Don't miss an episode. You can listen and subscribe to the Pin Kings podcast in the ESPN app or download and listen on Apple Podcasts.